Hey, everybody. I hope your day is going well. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor at Mount Hope's Belmont Campus in Belmont, Massachusetts. It's good to talk to you. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the purpose of marriage? Seems like we're less and less clear on the answer to that question in our world today. In fact, some of us don't see a purpose in it at all, and so we're avoiding a relationship like that altogether. But what is the purpose? Is there a mission for marriage uh, that we need to think about and potentially embrace? That's what we talked about in this sermon you're about to listen to. This sermon was delivered by Justin Joseph, who's part of the preaching team here at Mount Hope. And of course, as always, he did a great job. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope you'll listen closely, because I believe that God has something he'd like to say to you. Good to see everyone this morning. I want to thank our worship team for uh, your blessed ministry this morning as well. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Justin. I serve on the teaching team here at Mount Hope. It's such a joy to see everyone. If you're visiting with us today, very special welcome to you as well. Uh, if you have not been here with us the past few weeks, you may not know that we've been in a series called Ancient Families, Modern Problems. We've been discussing some of the families of the, of the scriptures of, the, of ancient times and what they went through and demonstrating how closely related they are to what we go through today and how we're experiencing life today. If you are with us last week, you know Pastor Brian was talking to us about marriage, about this idea of commitment, this idea of deep, meaningful love being the combination of desire and duty together in one. And this week we get to continue that topic. We will be talking about marriage again today. We will be continuing that idea. If you find yourself this morning completely uninterested at this point, that's okay. I promise there's something for you this morning as well. Maybe you find yourself married and feel like you can benefit directly from this message this morning. But maybe you find yourself single or hoping to be married or in another situation in life right now. Please stick with us today. There's an opportunity to really understand and learn what God intends this morning. But before we get to that, I'm going to seek your help this morning. I need your help in answering a question today. Now, especially to the veteran parents in the room and maybe some grandparents in the room, I'm really going to need your help to help answer this question. I have a five-year-old son and a three-year-old son. Many of you know Ethan and Noah. Now, Ethan and Noah are really into drawing right now. This is their thing. They love to draw great works of art, or at least in their minds, masterpieces of art that they will come and bring to you. Now, that's fantastic, but what happens when they show you one of their drawings and then say, Daddy, guess what this is? I don't know how to answer that question. Let me show you a piece of artwork from Ethan first. Can you guess what this is? Not bad. And that's the five-year-old. Not too bad. Now, Ethan loves to draw trains, and he'll draw a train, and he'll bring it over to you and say, Daddy, can you guess what this is? And I will say, it's a red train, and he will love me for knowing exactly the intention of his heart. But then his three-year-old brother will bring me a drawing as well, and it looks something like this. <laughs> Why are you laughing at his artwork? <laughs> no, it's, he will bring this to me, and he will say, Daddy, can you guess what this is? How do you answer that question? Because in my mind, I want to answer that question in such a way that I not only not hurt his feelings, I don't hurt his future as well. I want to answer that question in the best possible way. Does anyone want to take a guess what Noah's drawing is? Yeah, good, good try. Rocket, that's exactly what I guessed. Not even close. 
if you, if you want to know what Noah's drawing is, it's actually a bull eating grass, is what this is. Yeah, now you see it, right? You see the legs, the tail, the green grass there, which then I ask the obvious question, Noah, what is the red line? To which he responds, Daddy, it's a red line. And that's it. <laughs> and so, when you learn to answer these kinds of questions, you start to figure out, there is nothing that I could have guessed, nothing I could have done that would have come close to the intention that Noah had when he put this piece of art together. Not even close. You see, all along, the intention, the design, the purpose was in the heart of Noah. He's the only one that knew what the intention, the purpose, and the design was. And no matter how much I tried to guess what it was, it wasn't going to come even close. This morning, we're going to talk about marriage. Something designed beautifully and intimately and sacredly by God and the more and more we try to guess the intent and the design, the more that we try to guess the purpose of marriage, the more we tend to be completely off of what it was ultimately designed for. This morning, we're going to seek the intent and the design of the designer and ask him, what did you design this, this sacred institution for? What did you put marriage together for? And then from there, we will try to figure out what we're supposed to do day by day. In just a few minutes, we're going to look into a family from Scripture and specifically how they were able to accomplish the will and the purpose of God through their lives and through their marriage. But first, I think we need to understand what we're doing in our generation, in our culture, that sometimes breaks away from God's ultimate design and intention of marriage. The truth is, Unfortunately, much like me and Noah's drawing, we have made marriage what we want it to be, what we think it should look like. We have designed it in ways that we think best fit what we think it should be. And let's be honest, most of us have designed marriage to be something that benefits myself. How can I get the most out of this situation? How can I be happiest? How can I fulfill my goals, my aims, my desires in life? How can I be the ultimate benefactor of this situation? That's what we have turned marriage into. Think about some of the reasons why marriages don't work out. We have reasons like we fell out of love. We were better off as friends. We're not really the same as we used to be. Or I don't love him anymore. We just aren't compatible anymore. It just wasn't working out. When we start to look at the design and the, and the purpose and the intent of marriage, and then you compare it to some of the answers that come out for why a marriage didn't work out, we'll see a massive break. Something went wrong. Something is broken. Because what we have done is we've turned marriage into our, our road to happiness, our way of getting a fulfillment, to lose our loneliness, to find compatibility, and somehow expect tremendous happiness as a result of that. We've turned happiness and peace into the idols of our marriages. That if I can use this other person to make myself happy, I've succeeded. And it's sad because we don't really say it that way, but that's in many ways what we do. We try to turn marriage into our road for happiness. Our culture all around us teaches us it's about me. It's about what I can get. It's what I can have. 
An author named Tara Parker Pope a couple of years ago wrote this article that became very famous. It went viral over the internet. The article was her advice for a successful marriage. Now, she's a secular author, and she believed that marriages, and the, art, the title of the article should tell you a lot. The title was simply this. The happy marriage is the me marriage. The happy marriage is the me marriage. Her thesis, her entire idea was built around this, that if each person in the marriage can pursue his or her own happiness as forcefully as he or she can, they will have a happy marriage. Now, she brought in a lot of data that she was trying to find. She brought in a lot of anecdotal evidence. She brought it together to argue that if each person, if the husband pursues his happiness with all his might and the wife pursues her happiness with all her might, they will be happier together. Now, that doesn't go at all according to what Scripture says, but in her mind and in this culture, it made sense. That we can be happier if we have this private arrangement where we each seek out our own happiness. But what happens here? This puts a crushing burden of expectation on the other person, doesn't it? That I am entering into this relationship with you so that you, in this finite amount of time that we have developed for each other, in this finite amount of time that I'm not telling you how long that is, But within this finite amount of time, you have to satisfy all my longings, all my needs for happiness, all my needs for self-esteem and satisfaction. You have to finish all of those for me. And we place this crushing burden of expectation on the other person, and then you wonder why phrases like, I just don't love you anymore come about, or we're not compatible anymore come about. Here's what we've done to marriage. We've taken God's beautiful design and his beautiful intent, and we've made it our own intent. We've taken our own selfish nature, and we've magnified it onto marriage. It's this beautiful work of art that God created right in the Garden of Eden. This beautiful work where he would join a man and a woman in perfect harmony, in perfect complementary nature, and they would go off and solve something together. They would accomplish a mission together. But for some reason, we've taken that beautiful masterpiece and thrown paint at it and said, look, I'll make it better because I'll focus on myself. And when that doesn't work, we go and throw dirt at it and say, I'll make it better by myself. And when that doesn't work, we light the whole thing on fire and we say, look, I'm going to make it better my way somehow or another. This is what we've done to marriage. We've turned it from what God's intention was, which we'll get to in just a minute, into our own thing, into how we benefit, into how we get something out of it. And as a result, we've turned Christ-centered marriage into something called self-centered marriage, a self-focused marriage. And it destroys marriage because it was never the intention to begin with. It crushes marriages because it makes the marriage focus on things that it was never intended to focus on. Let's take, a, uh, let's take a, a, an imaginary couple, a fictitious couple. We'll call them Jeff and Jane. Jeff and Jane, let's say they met each other at college, and shortly after college, they launched off into careers in in modeling. You may have seen some of their best work on public restroom doors all over the world. Jeff and Jane, let's say that they've met each other in college. Jane was immediately attracted to how talkative and extroverted Jeff was. He was always the life of the party, the social butterfly. I was drawn to Jeff because of that. 
Now, she also realized that Jeff was so talkative and extroverted, but he wasn't really committed to certain ideas. He wasn't really focused on his career. He was kind of just focused on having fun and, and, and being the life of the party. But Jane was attracted to that because Jane was an introvert. And Jane was very quiet and reserved and to herself. Jane was very quiet, but she was very focused. She had a deliberate pattern to her life. She believed in focus on her career. She wanted to make sure life worked out well. And in order to do that, she had to plan ahead. Now, what happens to Jeff and Jane, though? They fall in love. They have this infatuation. They, they are with each other in the early parts of their marriage. But then something starts to unravel over time because the self-centered marriage starts to realize all the flaws in the other person that used to be these amazing gifts that they had. Where you start to see, wait, Jeff was always the life of the party, but today I just see the fact that he doesn't have a steady job. He doesn't make a steady income, and I just focus on that because I see the flaw in him much more elevated at this point. And Jeff looks back at Jane a couple of years down the road and says, Jane is so quiet. Jane is so reserved. I think she's hiding something from me. I have doubts about her, her loyalty to me because she's so quiet and so reserved. And over and over again, when you take couples, couples you know, couples you are, or couples you've seen, this often is the reason why marriages eventually break down, eventually decay, is because we focus on ourselves and all of the problem is the other person. All of the problem lies in someone else, not myself. And self-centered marriages focus us and they make us focus on ourselves and what we can gain. And when we don't get that feeling anymore, when we don't get that, that infatuation feeling, that romantic feeling we had early on in our relationship, we start to blame the other person for not giving us that feeling anymore. And this is what self-centered marriage starts to look like. I thought she was going to fulfill me. I thought she was going to be better, and when she didn't, I'm going to find that fulfillment somewhere else. Think about the downward spiral that many of our relationships go through. That downward spiral of, I don't think she respects me anymore, so I'm not going to love her. And then she says, I don't think he loves me anymore, so I'm not going to respect him anymore. And that downward spiral ultimately doesn't start with the other person. It starts with us. We have made marriage about ourselves. And as a result, we've started this downward spiral that destroys marriages. But ultimately, it still goes back to the designer and the ultimate intent and purpose of marriage. As soon as we lose sight of the intent and the purpose, everything else breaks down. I want to remind you this morning before we look at what a Christ-centered marriage is to understand that every self-centered marriage is, is plagued by this self-centeredness, this focus on ourselves that cripples the marriage. I want to get something. I want to have my way. I want to win arguments. I want to be out on top in this situation. I want to make sure I finish first in this situation, in this marriage. I want to be the best. When the marriage starts to focus on each individual, it's crippling. If you want to take a look at what a self-centered marriage looks like, and I'll put it in a triangle form, maybe this might help us understand what it looks like. There is a massive division within the marriage. Rather than a whole triangle, you start to see God somewhere in the, in the equation, sometimes. 
But then you see a husband constantly trying to get what he wants in his way, seeking himself first. And you see a wife seeking her needs, constantly worried about what she gets in the situation. And there's this constant quest to win. And it separates the two from each other. And it separates them from God. And there's this division that takes place. Why? All along because we did not do what marriage was intended to do. You may remember in the famous 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul writes about love. You may remember love is patient. Some of you might have seen it in Home Goods on a sign or something like that or on a Hallmark card. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. But there's this one little phrase right after that. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. It does not look to see what can I get out of this situation. It tries to see how can I better serve the other person. And now we're starting to see what Jesus had in mind in the whole idea of marriage to begin with. That self-seeking marriage ultimately just tears two people apart, tears apart the marriage, and ultimately brings no glory to God to begin with. But what does a non-self-seeking, what does a Christ-centered marriage start to do? We know this in a self-seeking marriage. Remember, the blame ultimately comes to, it comes to someone else because I have to get what I want. And then when I don't get what I want, I need to change the other person so that I can get what I want. How many of you married folks learned pretty early, I cannot change my spouse? Yeah? Okay, most of <laughs> Eileen's got her hand up pretty high. <laughs> We've learned that marriage is one of these situations where it's almost impossible to change my spouse. We can change small behaviors, but can I change their hearts? Can I change them completely? It's virtually impossible. Now, I had a microcosm of this very early in my marriage. In fact, in the first minute of my marriage, I learned this. I want to share with you a photo of the minute I'm, I'm presenting my vows to my wife. So this is my actual perspective that you're watching at this moment. And Alina's standing across from me, and the, and the pastor starts to say, to you, Justin, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward till death do you part. And I repeated with great confidence, I said, I do. Lice and loud, into the microphone, everyone heard it, and there was a beautiful rhythm to the pastor's words and then to my words. And then something happened. He turned over to Alin and he said, Alin, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward till death shall do you part? Silence. Nothing happened. Now, silence can be awkward, but silence on an altar in front of hundreds of people is very, very crippling, especially at that moment where she's supposed to gladly say, I do. But she didn't. Seconds passed, and it felt like hours had passed at that point, and she's still not saying anything, and a part of me is going, say it, say it, say it, please say it, but there was nothing I could do to make her say it. Now, it took me a couple of seconds to realize she was welling up with tears, realizing what she's about to enter into. No. <laughs> she was so happy and overcome with joy, clearly, that she was willing, she, she just couldn't get the words out at that moment. But at that moment, I wanted to change her so bad, to get her to say I do so bad, to calm that nervousness that I had, but I realized I couldn't change her. She had to be ready at the moment to say what I needed her to say. 
So it brings us back to this question, then what is a successful marriage? What does it look like? If it's not self-seeking, what does it look like then? Let's say we have two couples who've been married for 50 years, who both sets of couples have beautiful children who are very well-adjusted and successful, and they have wonderful grandchildren, and they have a beautiful home and stuff and great careers. Two married couples for 50 years. When do we say that one was successful and one was not? How do we do that? What is the definition of success? Because not every couple who makes it 50 years is automatically successful. There has to be something else that helps us define success, and I think that's what we're going to learn this morning. What is it that answers the question, was my marriage or is my marriage successful? Think about it this way. If we had a team, a sports team at the end of a season who came and and did a press conference at the end of a season and said, we were very successful this year. We sold out every single game that we had this year. We sold more jerseys than any other team in our league. We have the finest hot dog stand of any stadium in our division. We have greener grass than any other field in this entire place. What would you naturally think? Were they successful? What's the question that still plagues your mind? Did you win? Because ultimately, that's what you're designed for. This team is designed to win. If you do all this other stuff but still don't win, are you still successful? So let's take a look at a couple that was able to do this in Scripture. And we're going to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18. The book of Acts, chapter 18. We're going to think about this. If we get self out of the center of our marriages, what do we replace it with? And we see that in Acts chapter 18. I'll read verses 18 to 24. Actually, let's just go down a little further. Let's go to verse 24 down to 25. I'm just going to read a couple of verses together. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Let's look a little further. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. You may have heard of this couple before, Priscilla and Aquila, sometimes referred to as Aquila and Priscilla. Here's what's so interesting about this couple and why they represent an ancient family with a beautiful, beautiful marriage. They are only mentioned four times in all of Scripture. All four times they're mentioned together. That should tell us something right off the bat. They were partners in ministry, and they were mentioned together. In fact, the Bible mentions them as Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, two times, and the other two times mentions them as Priscilla and Aquila, wife and husband. So amazing is their their union, is their work together, is their mission. They are seen as equals laboring in the work of God together. Now, what did they actually do, though, is pretty important. 
In one verse, we see that Aquila and Priscilla, like we saw today, invited a young man who was a fervent preacher, invited him to their home, opened up their doors and said, come on in and stay with us a little while. We have some more to teach you and train you so that you can be better used for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. In another part of scripture, Paul talks about Aquila and Priscilla as having risked their lives for him and for the sake of the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla are seen over and over again opening up the doors of their home. In fact, they had a church in their home at one point. We know this through scripture as well. Here's what these two are doing that most of us forget to do. They understood the intent, the design, the purpose of marriage. They got it. And here's what it ultimately boils down to. If the purpose of life if the purpose of each of us individually is to be on mission, and you hear this constantly, if you've been attending here at Mount Hope, you know this is at the heart of everything we do. We gather to learn about God. We grow in our love for him and for others. And then we go and live lives of faith to the others around us. You know this is our mission, so the purpose of all of life for every individual is to live life on mission. That's ultimately what we're called and set apart to do. So then what's the purpose of marriage then? The purpose of marriage is to live a life, to, to be on mission together. To be on mission together. If the purpose of your individual life is to be on mission, then the purpose of marriage is simply to be on mission together. In the Garden of Eden, when God designs man and woman and joins them together in the very first marriage, there's a verse there that goes like this, where God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is such an interesting passage. Now, the word helper, he did not say other phrases that could have been used there. He specifically said, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, doesn't that naturally signify to us something there's a mission, there's a purpose, there is something that needs to be accomplished with that help. But naturally, what do we do? We focus on ourselves. What can I get out of it? Meanwhile, God all along had designed marriage for two people to help each other towards a common purpose, a unified goal. And a happy marriage, and I know this is going to go against everything our culture says, a happy marriage is not the goal of marriage. It is a result of marriage, a good, godly, Christ-centered marriage. It is a fruit of a Christ-centered marriage, but it is not the goal of a Christ-centered marriage. Our goal is to be on mission together, is to glorify God together. That is the goal that we are designed for. The purpose of marriage is to be on mission together. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, one of the most famous passages on marriage in Scripture, we read like this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then did what? And gave himself for her. Wow, this goes far against what our culture says a successful marriage is. It's not about me. That if I am to love my spouse the way that God calls me to love my spouse, I must die to myself. I must give up myself in a happy way, so happily that I want her to be better off. I want her to grow. I want to die to myself to serve her just as Christ died for me and, and gave himself for me and for the church. That's a very different proposition than what we typically hear about a successful marriage. It's not about me getting what I want. 
It's about me giving everything I can for the other person. You've heard sometimes that phrase that marriage is a 50-50 proposition, but Bible, the Bible teaches us something very different. That marriage is a 100% proposition. You give everything you have to the other person, and in return, you get everything you can from the other person, and together you grow in your love for God. You saw that triangle before with what a self-centered marriage looks like. Now take a look at what a Christ-centered marriage looks like. A Christ-centered marriage is where the husband and wife pursue God together. But as they pursue God, and do you notice that in the triangle, the more you pursue God, do you notice the closer you get to each other as well? And this is what Christ designed marriage to do. Pursue him with all your heart. Love him with all your heart. And together, when you love him and serve him and honor him, the two of you will grow closer together as well. And that's where the true peace, the true happiness of marriage lies. It lies in the intention of marriage, in the purpose of marriage. That's where it lies. And Aquila and Priscilla understood that so profoundly. They got it. They saw that the more we serve God together, the better off we will be together. The world often asks us to choose fulfillment or sacrifice. Either you can be fulfilled in your marriage or you can sacrifice for the other person in your marriage. But the Bible teaches us something completely different. It tells us that there is mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. That we each grow when we each sacrifice. This is why submission is such an important word in Ephesians chapter 5. It is the phrasing of servanthood. Now, it's not servanthood as you might imagine it, that someone is the boss over the other person. That's not at all how it's designed. It's designed like this because a servant has someone else's intentions first in their mind. Someone else's well-being is always first in their mind. And that's the key to a successful marriage. Someone else's well-being is first in my mind. I die to myself so that someone else can be better. That type of sacrifice, I say, God, I want you to be glorified so I will give up some of my, my desires or intentions so that you can be glorified. My spouse, I want you to be better, to you to grow closer to God, so I will give up some of my intentions, some of my desires, so that you can be better. Marriage does this. It brings two people so close together where we understand the gospel better as a result of it, where we can truly get the, a grasp of the gospel. What's the gospel? That we are so flawed and we are so wicked within ourselves more than we ever believed we ever could be. But the gospel also teaches us that we're more loved than we could ever imagine that we could be loved. In the same way, marriage teaches us that we are flawed. And ask any married person here, and they'll tell you, the way that I knew my flaws best was by entering into marriage. Because my flaws were magnified when I entered into a close partnership with someone else. But at the same time, I also learned how loved I could possibly be. This is where the gospel and marriage go hand in hand, where the one reveals the other to us. So what do we do in order to have a Christ-centered marriage? There are three quick points that I want to share with each of us, whether you find yourself married this morning or hoping to be or whatever situation you're in this morning. There are three quick things that we can be thinking about. Number one, I want us to all be thinking about looking up. In our marriages, to look up. 
If we start every day, if we set aside time in our days where we look to God in our marriage first, set aside moments in every week where we can look to God first, that is the first step toward a positive, strong, successful marriage. You have to look up first. This morning, if you find yourself in a situation where prayer is kind of sparse in your marriage, where time talking about the Lord, talking about the mission, talking about what God has designed you to do together, if that is rare in your marriages, and I encourage you this morning, spend time every week looking up first. Secondly, spend time every week looking in Spend time every week looking in. This is between you and your spouse. How can we build up our marriage better together? How can we spend more time this week together? Can we go and do something together? Can we converse regularly today in some form or fashion to make ourselves stronger in the Lord? And finally, to look out. So we start by looking up towards God. We look in toward each other, and then we look out toward the world around us. The reason why Priscilla and Aquila were so successful in their marriage is because they realized our marriage is to bring glory to God. And that's the design and the purpose all along was to bring glory to God. So rather than me bringing glory to God by myself, now I have a partner on this mission. Together we can bring glory to God. Together, as a result, we are better off. And Priscilla and Aquila noticed that there was this young man named Apollos who just did not know all of the, the word of God perfectly, did not understand all of the doctrine well, so they invited him into their home. They had a house. They had jobs. They had an income. They were tent makers, so they had money and they had a home. They had resources. They poured it out on other people so that they could glorify God further as well. Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila opened up their doors of their home so a church could meet in their home. And it wasn't like you would imagine where they opened up their doors and everything was going to be okay. They opened up their doors knowing if anyone found out what was going on in this home, we could die as a result of it. But they knew together we formed this partnership that can bring glory to God that's on mission together. They focused outward toward what we can do together. So all of us this morning have an opportunity, and I encourage you, if that's in a conversation in the car ride home today, or a conversation at some point this week, if you, are, uh, if you have an opportunity to speak with your spouse, and maybe your spouse is not here this morning, have this conversation. How can we spend more time looking up, more time looking in, and more time looking out? How can we do that day by day, week by week? Because a Christ-centered marriage makes Jesus' priorities your highest priorities. A Christ-centered marriage allows you to pray with each other because you know that she does not have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. We need to get them from somewhere else. A Christ-centered marriage communicates out of love and respect to each other, not out of anger and shortness and constant temper tantrums. It's a constant quest to love and respect the other person even more than I did yesterday because I love them and I will give myself for them the way Christ gave himself for me. That's what a Christ-centered marriage does. A Christ-centered marriage is being willing to give far more than you ever get. And let's be honest, this is where a lot of the resentment starts, where you feel you are not getting what you are owed. You are not getting what you deserve. But I encourage you this week as you spend time in the presence of God to ask God, how can I give more? And some of you are sitting here right now having poured out everything for your spouse, and you know you're not getting it in return. 
I encourage you this morning, pour out even more. Pour out even more and love them. And as you do that, watch what God does in your marriage. Watch how he can resurrect things that have been dead for so long when he sees, when, when your spouse sees that you are still willing to pour into them. And it's a hard thing to ask for some of us, but something that we can do because of what Christ did for us. What else does it mean to have a Christ-centered marriage? It means that we respect one another. It means that we show grace because we understand how much grace we've received. It means we appreciate one another. The small things that are done for us every day to just walk up to that person and say, thank you for doing that for me today. I love you because you you do this for me every single day. Just those tiny little moments of appreciating the other person because you know what someone was willing to do for you so you show appreciation. And finally, a Christ-centered marriage develops the mission together. Take time in your marriages to develop the mission that God has called you for. If that's to pray more for other people, develop that together. It only happens with conversation first. To find out what those things are and to pray together about those things and develop the mission that God has called you for. Because real love is an act of the will. It's, a, it's an act of, look, I will intentionally love you today. I will purposefully love you today. My parents are in the audience today. They actually two weeks ago celebrated their 43rd wedding anniversary just two weeks ago. And, yeah, it's... it's It's incredible when you ask about their beginning and where they are today, 43 years later, where you ask about what the greatest blessings were besides their second son, obviously. If you ask what their greatest blessings were and what was it that drove them to this point, they will tell you it's not longevity. Being married for 43 years is not the key. The time in and of itself wasn't the key. In fact, if you ask for their very beginnings, it will tell you a lot. My parents, who grew up in southern India, had a very traditional arranged marriage. My mom was off in nursing school in northern India when she received a telegram from her father. The telegram simply read, your marriage is settled, come home now. That's an awesome telegram, by the way. You're just waiting for like the I got you kind of thing. But no, your marriage is settled, come home right away. She comes home and just within a matter of days, she is married to my father. And that's it. It was any traditional arranged marriage. And if you ask them, what was the key to your marriage? It wasn't the infatuation, the love, the first moments, because those moments were few and fleeting at that time. But what was it? They understood early that we are being joined together with a mission. We are teammates now in this mission that we're joined for. This mission is not about my happiness. This mission is not about your happiness. This mission is about God and how do we get there together. And day by day by day, they've gone through tough times. They'll tell you that they've learned over time that the more we keep our eyes up on the Lord, the closer we draw to God, the closer we draw to each other, and then we fulfill the purpose of God together. This is what we're all designed for, to fulfill the mission of God. And if you are married this morning, your call is simple. Fulfill it together. That's it. But we complicate it by bringing our goals and our intentions, our happiness first before all of that. When we don't realize when we follow the mission of God, those things will follow as well. So this morning, if you find yourself in a situation that you are wondering and you're questioning, how can I ever have a marriage that's successful? Maybe we need to change our definition of success a little bit. 
Maybe we need to understand that just as Noah brought that drawing to me and I had no idea what he was doing, that God had a design and an intent that you and I may not completely grasp because we've bought into our culture's version of successful marriage. This morning, we have an opportunity to flip that paradigm a little bit and to say, my marriage is intended for God's glory. The purpose of marriage is to be on mission together. And this morning, you may have a million questions in your mind. How will I even start? How do I even bring this up to my spouse? My spouse doesn't even know Jesus. How do I bring this up to him or her? Each one of us has an opportunity every day to do the things that God has called us to in a Christ-centered marriage. And little by little, let the Holy Spirit do its work. Little by little, there are conversations that can be had. I encourage all of you this week to spend time in prayer. Prayer about not only your marriages, but every marriage around us. Something so interesting to think about, that there was no marriage before God created Adam and Eve, and the Bible tells us there will be no marriage after we leave this earth. Why did God design marriage just for this time? Why did he want it just for this phase of all of eternity? Clearly, there was a reason for it, and that reason is that there is a mission that needs to be accomplished together. I encourage you to find what that mission is this week. Let's spend some time in prayer as our worship team comes back for up to close us out in worship. Every one of us, every one of us, myself especially, suffers with self-centeredness in my marriage, self-centeredness in everything I do. There are so many days over this past week when I was looking through this passage to prepare this sermon where I thought to myself, wow, I'm self-centered. Wow, I focus on myself too much. Self-centeredness is the worst enemy of every marriage. And this morning we have an opportunity to confess some of our self-centeredness. Some of the areas of our lives where we have clearly put ourselves in front of God in our marriages. Or if you find yourself not married today or, uh, or coming here with a different situation. Self-centeredness is something we all struggle with. This morning, let's find those areas of our lives where we expect to get rather than give. We're focused on ourselves above and beyond all else. I love how Aquila and Priscilla, they gave everything. They gave their home for the work of God. They gave their time and their resources for the work of God. They gave even their lives for the work of God to risk everything for what God valued the most. And the greatest success in marriage is not my happiness. Remember, that's a result of my marriage. The greatest success of my marriage is being on mission together with the partner that God has given me. And here's an opportunity to begin doing that today. Let's confess for a minute those areas of our lives. Let's find time this week to speak to our spouses and remind them of the areas we've fallen short. If you are hoping to be married one day, this is an opportunity to set our hearts and our minds even now that I will go forward selfless and Christ-centered rather than self-centered. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would overwhelm us with your love this morning, O oh Lord. Help us to be so overwhelmed by the love of Christ in our hearts 
that we then go and shower that love on our spouses unconditionally, sacrificially shower that love upon our spouses and they then go and take that love and shower it back upon us and then together we take that love and shower it upon others, Lord God. But let it all begin with you this morning. Let it begin with a clear understanding of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. Let our marriages be Christ-centered. Lord, we recognize that we live in a day and a time where marriage is not what it used to be, where marriage is constantly under attack, where even the institution itself often comes under attack, where it's often seen as just a convenience for happiness or a convenience of some other sort. Lord, help us to turn our eyes back to your design and your intention of marriage, that it was ultimately to be on mission together. Help us to do that today. Lord, we thank you for every family in this family, Lord God. I pray for every husband and wife that is here right now, that in the name of Jesus, that we would go forth blessed and changed and challenged, that we would go forth loving one another, serving one another, and ultimately serving you the most, Lord. God, I pray that every work of the devil, every work of the enemy against our marriages would be crushed in the name of Jesus that every work of darkness against what God has joined together would not work, Lord God, that you would unify us in the places where we are broken, that you would give us reconciliation where there feels only pain. Lord God, bring us back together so that we may serve you, Lord. You have this beautiful, beautiful design for marriage. Forgive us, Lord God, for the ways we have messed up your design. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for the ways that we value ourselves first. Help us to value you and help us to value the partner that you've blessed us with. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you continue to watch and bless us as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together. Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m., Or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.